0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Ashley, uh, for for the worship this morning. I will tell you, I was I was just in tears over here as we were singing "Be Thou My Vision." You know, because really the words of that song, "Be My Everything," Jesus, be all I need. We would probably agree that that's what we all want, right? That's that's our heart as believers. Um. And I think about in terms of of today, and then the following song to that was, um, "Father, you're a good, good Father, and that's who you are, and I'm loved by you. And He is a good Father; we're absolutely loved by Him. And I want to tell you that as we, as as Seth prayed about 9/11 today, and that was such a watershed moment in our country's history, and it was a time that sent people to their knees." For a very short period. And uh, it's interesting that today that, that what I'm going to be speaking on is, is about the trials of this life. And what I want to say to you, even just to set the stage, is that our good, good father, who loves us so deeply, allows some really horrific trials to come our way in order to get us to that place where he's always want. Corey ten Boom said this. She said that Jesus will never be all you need until he's all you have. And what the trials of this life do is they actually bring you a little bit closer to that place. And they strip us. I just want to pray for us, Lord. Lord, as we uh, unpack James and the first 12 verses of James this morning. Lord, I am so aware that this Word will do nothing apart from Your Spirit working in us. Lord, for those here today as unbelievers, I pray that Your Spirit would quicken them. I pray that Your Spirit would show them their need of a Savior. And for those of us today who are born-again believers... I pray the same prayer that your spirit, Lord, would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And and so importantly, hearts to receive what you have for us today, Lord. We are totally dependent on you. And Lord, we just bow before you. And I pray your spirit would do his work today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, You know, I'm aware that as you preach a sermon on on trials. You know that I, in fact, I know so many of you and we've shared life together and I know some of your deep trials. I know some of the deep pains that you've gone through, some of the suffering. I may know it from afar with some of you and closer with others. And some of you know the suffering that I've gone through and the trials that I've gone through in life and the pain and the different situations. I would say that if you're here today and you're younger, One of the disadvantages of being young is you haven't really probably faced a lot of those difficult trials in your life. Some of you may have, but for the most part, you you haven't had the blessing of really being shaped and molded by those, those kind of trials. And so today, as as I come to you, I don't want to come as someone detached, but someone who's in this with you. And really, James gives us such a good word. He says... Your good father brings these trials, allows these trials into your life. And here's what he wants to do. And here's how he would have you walk through them. Um, And so as we as we start today, I want to start with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Most of you would know that name. The English Christian apologist and author who wrote Mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia. While addressing the subject of suffering, he said this pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. And why do we need to be constantly reminded to stay on that narrow road that leads to life? You know, if you've been a parent, <coughs> you've probably said to your kids before, um, at least once, why do you always have to learn the hard way? There are those who learn from others and those who learn by experience. If you would just listen to me, to what I told you, you know what? God has told us so much about so many things. He's told us about death and about life, about relationships, about our weaknesses, about his strength, about the way to live with his peace and love and joy in our hearts and about how to be truly satisfied in him. He's told us how to avoid the traps of our enemy, the devil, of his worldly ways and most of all of our own flesh. That remaining unredeemed humanness in us, our sinful nature, God has told us. Will we learn? Can we learn? Well, sooner or later, it seems to be a reality of this life that we need to be constantly reminded in the depths of our soul of our great God and His marvelous works and His amazing gifts and His amazing grace. And we seem to need constant reminders of how He satisfies our every longing. And our greatest joy in everything comes from him. He demands our all because he made us and he knows our greatest good is found in glorifying him. God gave James, who was the brother of Jesus, his words to us about this very thing. That we're in need of a megaphone on a daily basis, a regular basis. All of us here today in differing measures have faced the trials of life and and we're, we're not a stranger to this. James was writing to those who had been in his church, but had been scattered uh, abroad because of persecution. And he wrote them to instruct them. Uh, And a major theme of his letter was the trials of our faith, the tests of our faith. And his his major message was how the trials of life are used by God to prove our faith, that our faith is genuine. He actually tests our faith and, and it's proven over and over again that we have a genuine faith. And that they purify us, our faith, by stripping away the things that are not God, or not of God, and making us more like Christ bit by bit. So trials and, by extension, suffering is part of God's plan for your life. You can learn to thrive in it, though, and not just survive in it. And I would encourage you as we go through this today to set your mind to walk the road less traveled, that it really, truly does satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. So James, like we said, was a leader of the church in Jerusalem, but he had kind of a unique situation in that his church had scattered uh, because of the persecutions. There was a couple of different persecutions that had come and a lot of the, the people in his church were were scattered abroad and he was writing a letter to them. And he was writing it from a pastor's heart, from a shepherd to, to his sheep who had been scattered. And that's the heart that James brings uh, to this. And, and this is from the heart of God through the heart of James. So if you'll open your Bibles and turn to the book of James, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Bible. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So, too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So James walks us through in this passage how we're to walk through trials. And I really would like this to be very practical today uh, in how we face the trials of our life. And I'm going to take you through about six points that James brings out here. The first is when we face trials of life, we face it with an attitude of joy. And then we face it with the knowledge of God's work and purpose and trials. We face it with a submissive will to his work in the trial. We face it with wisdom from a focused faith. We face it with an understanding of the spiritual blessing of trials. And finally, we face it with an understanding of the reward of trials. So let's pick it up in verse two. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is writing uh, to Christians here, my brethren, and every human goes through trials on planet Earth. And but James is writing particularly to how we're the believers to walk through trials because we walk through them differently than an unbeliever, one who is not a follower of Christ. Someone who's not a follower of Christ is going to look to the resources of the world, the opinion and advices of others, how to feel better. So many different ways to try to face the trials of life. But as believers, it's so much different for us. So the the biggest resources that we have um, in our trials is, is God himself when we go through trials. And he uses trials in the life of every believer in this process of refinement and purification and sanctification. And there's absolutely meaning in every trial you face. <clears throat> Paul in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, says the same thing when he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, now listen to this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. You know, in the same way, God uses trials to prove our faith, that we have a genuine saving faith on how we endure and persevere through trials. And as we see in verse 12, the outcome of that is eternal life. The resources of the believer are God's resources. They're God Himself. But for unbelievers, as we said, they turn to the world. And as we'll address later, sometimes we do too, as believers. And he says when you encounter various trials, you know, this word various is just the word multicolored. There's so many different types of trials. There's the small trials of life that we face, the annoyances or irritants that we face that we call trials. And then there's the really big trials of life. Sometimes it happens on a national scale. And we think about September 11th, but you could also think... Back in history, you know, one of the big ones, you know, the Black Death, the plague, destroyed a, a third of the world's population. That's, that's pretty stunning. Or the Holocaust, where you could just go on and on and on, World War I, World War II. There have been serious trials on a national scale, an international scale. But then there's those trials in life that tend to be the ones that, that we live with on a, on, a ba- on a daily basis, at least somewhere in our life, and things like the loss of a loved one. The loss of a job. For us as believers, children or family members who don't know the Lord. Sickness and the word cancer that that scares so many of us. Uh, Relational issues and pain and conflict that results from that. Rejection and a lot of different situations. Someone you love disappoints you. Financial problems. Sudden tragedy, persecution, just the list goes on. But, you know, another way to look at these trials, those trials, they're also a test. And you may not have ever thought about it this way, but trials test our humility as believers. They test whether or not we think more highly of ourselves than we should. They test whether we have some imaginary idea that, that we're good enough or so good that God really doesn't need to to discipline or shape us. They test many times our affection for worldly things. um, and, And it tests us as we try to run to worldly solutions. It tests whether or not we're heavenly minded. Do we live with an eternal perspective? They test what we really, truly love. It tests the strength and character of our faith. Tests our humility in the way that we walk through trials, whether we're teachable and moldable or whether we're hardened and resistant. It Tests whether we are engulfed by worldly things. I mean, these this idea of testing and, 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 and trials is exactly that. And that word actually means test and actually means trials. And if you study James Moore, he gets into temptation. It also is the same word as used for temptation. But this is those external things that come into your life. That typically produce suffering that he's talking about here. So if I'm ever to pass the test. If I'm ever to gain from it. To be stronger. To actually allow the purposes of God to be worked out in my life. As I walk through these trials. James hits us and he begins with this. What's the first thing? That we're to be considered all joy. That just sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? I know we could probably quote this verse. But I don't know what your idea of joy is. But let me just share this word with you. This word is amazing. The word joy here in the Greek, it's kara. That that sounds familiar to some of you. It comes from the word charis, which is grace. And it means this, the awareness of God's grace and his favor. And I'd like you to think about it this way. Really, it's grace recognized. It's grace recognized. When these trials come your way, you need to recognize That this is God's grace in your life. Counterintuitive. But that's how God wants us to see this. You say, but how can anyone have joy in such a bad, rotten situation? Well, over in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Talks about Jesus and his road to the cross. And it describes it as for the joy set before him. There is a joy set before us. Praise the Lord that we have a hope and a future that's prepared for us by our Lord. And, and this is really the sustaining hope that should hold up every believer. And the Holy Spirit specifically produces this in our heart as we submit to him in all of our ways. In Psalm 16, verses 7 through 11, David just paints a beautiful picture of this. And I know you've heard this passage. I'll read the last verse 11. Where he says, you will make known to me the path of life in your presence, is fullness of joy in your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. The Lord wants us to just lean into his grace and recognize his grace is is the very first thing when something hits us. Our first response is to recognize the grace of God through this. And to never separate God from your trials. And so he's he's not here. This is bad. God's good. He's not here. That—that's not biblical. It's not truth. He's not some distant observer. He's right there with you in the middle of it. He's allowed this into your life, and he will absolutely work it for your ultimate good and for His glory. No matter what it is, His desire is that He becomes all you want, all you need, and all you have. But let me be clear about something else, too. Joy is not the absence of grief or sorrow or pain. It's just not. It's not like I have to be happy. Joy is recognizing the grace of God and having that peace in your heart. And, and God, Jesus grieved. He was sorrowful over what he saw. There was emotional pain in his life. And he was perfect. So that's not what I'm talking about. And those are real. And they're things that we experience. And actually, I forget the quote by C.S. Lewis. I meant to have it. But it talks about what pain does for you, that the pain's part of the deal in shaping us. Um, and it's his movie, Shadowlands, if you've never seen that. It's, 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 a, it's a powerful movie. So lean into God's grace and recognize his grace in your trial. And receive the supernatural joy of his presence. That, that's the first thing James talks to us about. But then one of the keys to, to that, to being able to lean into his grace, is actually the knowing, the understanding in your mind that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There's a purpose. There's a purpose. It's not just random and they just get through it. There's actually a purpose for you as the believer every single time. He said, "Understand what God's doing. He's making you stronger. He's producing endurance in your life. He's making you more formidable, strengthening your faith and your usefulness for His kingdom. If you can realize how this trial is developing you in His image, that's what God wants you to that's where He wants you to be. And you know that there is one thing, though, as you get older and you've experienced many trials in your life, they may harden you, and they may make you bitter. But they also may teach you greater patience and greater endurance and greater spiritual strength with a greater, and more intimate relationship with the Lord. And that's what James wants us to get to is not that other road. So the Apostle Paul was also in the midst of great suffering. And sometimes, you know, we don't get to see heaven's view of our suffering. Most of the time we don't. But here's a case where we there's a couple of cases in Scripture. Job is one where we get to see heaven's view of the suffering, right? And what God was up to, what the enemy was up to, and how actually it worked in Job's life, and how God was glorified in it. But the Apostle Paul we get to see that in 2 Corinthians twelve, seven through ten. It says this, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, and you know, Paul had actually spent time with the Lord. God had come, Jesus had come to him and downloaded his word to him and spent time with him. And Paul had been taken up with a vision uh, into the third heaven, I believe it was. And, and he had great revelation given to him by God as, as a writer of the scripture. And because of that, this is what it says. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. We don't know what that was, but it must have been a bitter pill for Paul to swallow. It must have been pretty bitter. He says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. This is the Apostle Paul praying. If anybody's prayers ought to be answered, it's his, right? I mean, and it goes like this. And he said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I I am well content with my weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul gets it. He gets it. We all want to love Jesus with all of our hearts. We all want to be in perfect fellowship with Him. We want to glorify Him. But boy, we are human in every bit of it. And God continues to shape us and to mold us till that's where He brings us. And that we actually can taste that pure, living water. And actually see that it's not just all we need. It is the best. And it truly satisfies. But I've got to tell you, that's a hard place to give for us in this broken world. And this is where trials and suffering comes in. But what an example of Paul submitting to the work of God in his life. And then he goes on to say, And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I just want to say this is about having a submissive will in your trials. James is saying, please, when these things come your way, submit to them. That is so not what we want to do. We want to fight them with everything that's in us. Um, To let the trial do in me what God in his infinite wisdom has purposed. To resist the urge to take the easy road. To resist the urge to grab the quick solution. The quick relief. Immediate happiness. Temporary peace. To escape the trial. Instead... Say these words, I will walk the path you have set before me, Lord. Don't fight it. Let the test do what God wants it to you to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is a part of spiritually maturing you, of your development, of growing up. So, illness, loss of a loved one, violence against you, loss of a job, whatever it is, your initial. Approach is recognizing God's grace, even in these worst of circumstances. <clears throat> Knowing that God's working all things together for what? For your good. That's right. And that's what it says in Romans eight twenty eight and 29. And furthermore, that passage is, is one you need to cling on to. That one in Philippians 1, 6. Because here's what's happening. If you're a born again believer, God has set his love on you. He's placed His Spirit in you. You know what He's done? He's committed. He's committed, as it says in Philippians 1, six, to completing the work He began in you. Guess what? It's going to happen. He's going to do it. And you know how He does it so often in this life? That megaphone. That megaphone. We want it. He's a good Father and He's going to give it to us. And He's shouting to us through the pain, through the suffering, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. So trials change us one way or another. We can become dependent and intimate with our Lord. Or we can become bitter and disillusioned. The first passes the test and the second one doesn't. So we come to this point. James has has given us some, some steps to take and And so you say, I've purposed in my heart, Lord, to walk with joy in light of God's grace and knowing that he's accomplishing his will in my life, making me more like Jesus, pointing me to a deeper walk and more reliance on him. But, Lord, I'm still struggling. I'm in the middle of this thing with so many questions. So many thoughts or feelings or doubts inside of me. What do I do? How am I supposed to feel? How am I supposed to act? Can I handle this? It's not like anything else I've ever dealt with. There's no way out. There's no way ahead. I just am completely undone. A battle is waging within. And I don't know how to handle the grief, the anger, the pain, the resentment, the jealousy. There's multiple paths to take. And I cannot see my way ahead. Lord, help. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach. It will be given to him. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do I do? How do I feel? Where do I go from here? I don't know. Ask of God. gives to all men generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. You need wisdom. The wisdom of God. And you need it from a focused faith. This word wisdom, really, the word is Sophia, and it means insight, skill, whether human or divine, intelligence. And it means the knowledge and practice of the requisites for godly and upright living. So in this case, the understanding and practical skill necessary to live life to the glory of God. It's actually applying God's word in our situation. That's the wisdom of God. Now, James in chapter 3, when we look ahead in James, he actually describes two kinds of wisdom. There's earthly wisdom, and he describes that as natural and demonic. And there's godly wisdom, which comes from above. And he says this, but the wisdom from above in chapter 3, verse 17, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And you know what? The Jews sought this kind of wisdom. When you look at the Psalms and you look at the Proverbs and you read Ecclesiastes, those books of wisdom, they were, they were enamored with wisdom. But the only thing that ever really sorted out life in, in, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish uh, religion, was the wisdom of God. And when you look at the wisdom of man in the book of Ecclesiastes, what does it say? All is vanity. And we're going to look at that just a little bit more uh, in, in a minute. But he says all is futility. All is nothing. And i begin to see that as I've grown older. As I see men trying to solve problems. Trying to solve the world's issues. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. It's all futility. Apart from the Lord. So we don't want some ethereal concept or some detached philosophy when we think of wisdom. That's not what we're after. What we want is a practical understanding of the issues of life. So that we can begin to sort out what's going on and look at it through God's lens. So to the Jews, very different from the Greeks, to the Jews, wisdom was understanding life in the view of God. Proverbs 2.6 says this, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He just piles it on. He just piles, gives you piles and piles of it. And he loves nothing more than to pour out his wisdom to his children who ask. You know, Psalm 119 is, uh, if you've never read Psalm 119, you need to. It, it, it's, I think it's the longest book in the Bible. Can I get some head shakes on that? Okay, it's the longest book in the Bible. That's probably why some of you haven't read it, but I'd still encourage you to read it. But I've just kind of underlined some stuff here, and I'm going to try to do this uh, very quickly. But it's all about the word. It's all about God's precepts and how we need to view this thing and what it does. And here's just a few of them. He says this uh, in in verse uh, 20. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. And then he says this in verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. That God's word is sufficient for revival in our hearts. He goes on to say in verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction. That your word has revived me. In verse 71 he says this. It is good for me that I was afflicted. That I might learn your statutes. So often God uses affliction to drive us to him. Drive us to his word. To his very presence. In Verse 89 says this, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Do you get that? His word is timeless. It's relevant. And it's unchanging. And lastly, in verse 165, he says this, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. So the word of God. It then says, let him ask of God. And, and this is really just the command to pray. It's the command to, to, to pray at all times. Um, according to Boom, I, I, w- I went to, to, to look at some quotes from her yesterday because, you know, she's someone unlike me who has truly been to the pit of destruction, the pit of suffering. You know, and I listened to her because of that. But she says this, <clears throat> is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? <clears throat> simple quote, but the analogy is pretty, pretty relevant and probably pretty on target for a guy like me and maybe for some of you. Now, C.S. Lewis says this, and I love this quote. He was in, in the point of grief and someone came up to him and said, well, we're, we're praying for you. You know, and, and C.S. Lewis says prayer. Says, I don't pray because I have to. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It's just flowing out the need to pray and talk to the Lord. So he goes on to say, who gives to all men generously and without reproach? It will be given to him. And this is important. You know, there's no secret code. There's no inside track to God. He's no respecter of persons. He is generous to all who seek him. And he's not like the God who says, "Well, you know, you came to me, and you probably really didn't deserve this, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw some wisdom your way. I'm gonna kind of help you out this time." He didn't do that at all. He says, "Ask, and it shall be given." He he does it generously, and without reproach. But then it says this. So, so we're we're gonna ask for God's wisdom. What do I do? How am I supposed to encounter this trial? And it says that God will give us wisdom. But it doesn't stop there. It says, but he must ask in faith. Well, let's talk about faith for a minute. Um, you know, our senses, you know and I mean like our human senses, tell, tells us to value pleasure, to value what makes us happy. And that's typically the direction that we go. But faith teaches us to value God and his work. And our senses tell us that we should value earthly security and earthly protection and earthly support. That's what our sense is. That's what we are typically geared to, to go towards. But faith tells us to value divine grace poured out in the midst of suffering. Two very different paths. Thomas Manson, who was a Puritan clergyman, who of this interests you was Oliver Cromwell's chaplain. He wrote in his commentary on James, While all things are quiet and comfortable... We live by sense rather than by faith, as the worth of a soldier is never known in times of peace. So if you start to see this contrast of during the times when things are just kind of going well in your life versus when something just hits you and knocks you upside the head. And what he's saying is here is when we're walking on this road so often, we live by our senses. And that it's God's, that megaphone that comes in and turns us on and our faith just gets engaged because we need the Lord. But we're so often asleep over here. So if you're going to pray, pray in faith, believing. And if you're still struggling here, pray this familiar prayer. Lord, you know that I believe. And most of you know what's coming next, right? But help me in my unbelief. I need help. Um, you know, Hebrews 11, one says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So those words, assurance, conviction, trust and confidence in a sovereign God who is in control. This word faith, it really is the word pistis. It actually means to be persuaded. To come to trust. And this kind of biblical faith, it's always a gift from God. It's never something that can be produced by you or me, by anyone. And in short, for the believer, faith is God's divine persuasion. And it's really distinct from human belief, but but it involves our belief. The Lord continuously births faith in us as we kind of submit to him and we yield to him. And so much so that we can know His will. You know, in, in, in secular antiquity, way back in the olden days, in other words, way back when, uh, this word actually refer, referred to a guarantee or a warranty. And once you think about this, in Scripture, faith is God's warranty. Certifying that the revelation that He's birthed in us will come to pass. It is divine persuasion. That's what it is. And we see it in Romans uh, where it says that God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We see it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. John Calvin said this. Faith always has the element of assurance, certainty and confidence. And evidential value substantiating the thing that we hope for. With faith, there's no strain or tension. Rather, it has the element of assurance and confidence in it. If there is strain or tension, trying to persuade yourself to keep from doubting, you can be quite sure that that's not faith. Faith's not the law of mathematical probability. It's not natural. It's spiritual. And it's the gift of God. You can't command faith that will. Faith is always something that is given. It's inwrought by God. It's so humbling to hear that. And to understand that even the faith that we have is a gift from God. Now God demands that we exercise the faith that He's given us. We don't work it up. We don't just try real hard to have faith. It's a gift from God. If you believed, if you're a believer here today, That was a faith that was given to you by God for you to even believe Him. How humbling is that? It certainly takes you and I out of it, doesn't it? But that is biblical faith. Just like Abraham, as it says in Romans 4, verse 21, being fully assured that what God had promised He was able to perform. So exercise that faith that God's given you as a believer. Then it says, without any doubting, for the one who doubts... It's like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And you know that surf of the sea, it just goes back and forth. It's restless, but it's endless ties. It doesn't get anywhere. And surely it's, it's like going back and forth between two opinions in your trial. What do I do? What do I do? I don't know. Maybe I should do this. Should I do this? And really, it's a picture just like the people in the church at Laodicea that God spit out of his mouth. They were lukewarm. And the double-minded man, this this term here, is primarily referred to an unbeliever. Uh, because in verse 8, as you go in in chapter 4, it says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, And that's always used in the New Testament as an unbeliever. He goes on to say, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Here he's talking to people who are sinners who have not been born again. But also, this person may be a lot like I am. A weak, doubting Christian. He's many times acting like an unbeliever. Um And really, the the startling verse is in verse 7 when it says, Let not that man expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. So sometimes, this is James' word to us to say, if we're not making any headway in our trials, take a look. Just just take a look. Am I double-minded? And you know, God is, he loves us, but he's not bound to answer us if we're just double-minded. So if you're going to debate God, if you're going to doubt his supply, his provision, his love for you, his care for you, his sovereignty, when that trial comes and you go to God, don't don't expect him to pour out wisdom to you. But just don't expect that. Because it says this double minded man's unstable in all his ways. This word actually means two souled two souled or two minded. That That's what it means. And really, in our context, it's it's really. Two minds between God and the world. God and the world. And this is very similar to what Charlie talked about last week. This idea of being lukewarm in Revelation 3. Neither hot nor cold. Living with a foot in the church and a foot in the world. And really setting neither one on fire. And over in Joshua twenty four fifteen, that's the verse many of you are familiar with. Where Joshua just lays it down. He says, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Some will go this way and some will go this way. But for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Very single-minded. So it's an issue of belief in the heart. And, and, he, and he's saying, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And, and James talks in chapter 4 about friendship with the world being an enmity with God. It says in 1 John 2.15, If any man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A couple of analogies here. I don't know how many of you are familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, but there's a character called Mr. Facing Both Ways. And that's, that's the picture of this person, Mr. Facing Both Ways. Another, how many people have seen Dr. Doolittle? Does that, that ring a bell to anyone? There's this uh, character called Push Me Pulley You. Push Me Pulley You. It's a two-headed llama that heads at each end of the body. And it's just really a picture of what we are sometimes, you know. I love you, Lord. I'm over here, too. Pushing in the world, oh, I love you, Lori. We're just, we're just going both ways with this thing. Um, but we're all familiar with Deuteronomy 6, 5. And it's what our hearts as believers, our hearts truly desire, this that we would love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. That's our heart's desire. I know it is. So why so often is that so hard? So speaking to you as believers today, if, if you're stumbling around, potentially in some pattern of sin, if you're thinking you can be in a right relationship with God, but yet you know that you've got your heart in the world, that that you're truly double-minded, and you're reaching out in the midst of a trial for wisdom without dealing with that, well, don't expect God to honor that. And don't expect God to answer you in your trial. That trial will continue, or others will come, because as a believer, He is... He is committed to bringing you to that place. So now if we're going to receive wisdom from God, we need to ask. And we need to ask in faith, with a joyful attitude and understanding mind, a submissive will to our trial, seeking His wisdom with this focused faith. And as I begin to close, I want to finish with this thought. And I know for me and for maybe some of you, we hold on to and pursue things that take our hearts away from God. And I think this is so interwoven in this whole passage. And even even as we go on in James and, and he addresses, just like in our Sunday school class this morning, but he addresses our disposition to the word and our either our hunger or just just how we approach the word of God. And maybe we just lack the hunger or passion for that. But as we hold on to and pursue things, it takes our heart away from God, maybe dulls our appetite from God and his way and his word. And when the trials come, we have that divided heart. James closes with this section with the truth that we can relate to. And I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but he gives us the example. He says, but the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position. And the rich man is the glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Can't you see it? This is so clear. Trials level us all. It brings truth and purity to light. The poorest of poor in this world. The poorest of poor are the richest of Rich. Are the richest of rich if they have Christ. And trials when they come in their poverty, they see it. And they're so blessed because of that. They're blessed more than anyone. We look at them, you're the poor. And they're the richest. I mean, the greatest example maybe some of us can relate to is George Bailey, right? George Bailey. The richest man in town. Don't you all cry at that part? Everybody, that's when we cry. Because here's a man who's just lost all his money and, you know, all this stuff, but he got it. He got what life was about. He was in relationship with people. He helped people. He did all this. He found the richness. And his brother, who was the hero, who had gone to war and had been given the Congressional Medal of Honor, flew all the way home in a snowstorm, right? And he starts get the chill bumps down. And he walks in the room when his brother was going to be put in jail for being in debt. And he says, raise your glasses, grape juice, of course, He says, raise your glasses, a toast to my brother, George Bailey, the richest man in town. What an incredible truth. And that's what's here and, and even talks about the, the rich man who rejoices in his humiliation because the rich man found out at the end of the day, all the pursuits, all the things that we try to get. We don't have enough money, but we want them. And we look at other people and we, we think that's what's going to make us happy. Well, the rich man, when he finds Christ, you know what? He glories in his humiliation of being brought down from earthly rich to poverty. But yet he glories in that humiliation because he too discovers that he's the richest man, not because of earthly riches, but because of Christ. Do you see that? And if I could be a parent and I could be a shepherd, I would say to you, if we could see this and actually get it early. And I'm going to close with this. I think I've said that once. OK, I get three times. Normally, that's that you get to say that three times. I'm going to close reading you some passages out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Why is this man on earth? Solomon. Here's what he wrote. The book of Ecclesiastes was written. It says in chapter one, his task was to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. In other words, look at life. Because don't, don't you ever wonder what life's all about? Why we're here? If you're a believer, you've, you've obviously tackled these things. And Solomon said, I'm going to explore everything in life and try to come up with some conclusions here. And those famous words, he gives us the answer in the first chapter and then he elaborates on it. he says, all is vanity and striving after wind. All is vanity. It's about getting what I want. It's about me. It's about pleasure. And it's striving after wind. It's elusive. It is not within your grasp. You try and you try. And you think the next thing around the corner is going to make you happy. And God is constantly giving us a megaphone to show us as believers. Stop it. I'm all you need. Cory ten Boom, listen. Christ will never be all you need until he's all you have. And God's constantly trying to show us that he can be all that we have. But he says this. And and I want to just particularly I want to speak to, to, to the young group today who have your so much of your life in front of you. I don't know what your goals are, your aspirations, your dreams. But Solomon has a good word for all of us, but for you, I want you to listen. So he says to himself in chapter two, he says, you know, I said to myself, come now, I'm going to test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And so he was he was actually going out to see if he could just just <coughs> grab it all, get the gusto. He said, And behold. It too was futility. And then, so what did he actually test? Let's think about this. He said, I said of laughter, it's madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. While my mind was guiding me wisely. And how to take hold of folly. Until I could see what good there is for the sons of men. To do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds, larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also I collected for myself silver and gold. And the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers. And the pleasures of men. Many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired. I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. Think about that. Is there anything on that list that. Is that a pretty complete list of kind of what we want and what we're striving after? And he had it all. You've heard this before for people that have had it all and they finally see it for what it is. Well, here's Solomon who had it all. Literally. If you go on to the very end, he says, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun. So, I don't want to leave you hanging there. Solomon, actually, this is a troubling book to read, Ecclesiastes. It's a very disillusioning book of life on planet Earth without God. And Solomon got to a bad place in his life. But here's how it ended. In the last chapter, he said this. Two things. It's a chapter about when all is said and done. He said, number one, remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember your creator. And then he says this. The conclusion when all has been heard is this. Fear God. Keep his commandments. And that isn't because you have a God up there saying, do my thing. It's because God made us. God knows exactly what will fulfill the greatest desires of our heart. His living water. And all those things Solomon was after, they're not going to do it. So just to close, as you face the trials of your life uh, and as the praise team comes, I want you to think about facing them with an attitude of joy. Just really the knowledge that God is working in your life to rid you of those things Solomon was after in his heart. And point you to him, the pure living water and and realize that you need to submit to these trials in your life because they're not from just somewhere out there randomly. God has allowed those in your life. And as a believer, he promises. He is using those to shape and mold you into the image of the perfect man. Jesus Christ. And that as you as you struggle to seek his wisdom and his word, hunger for his word, and really focus on the Lord, allow him to show you where your heart's other places and, and be single-minded in your love for him and your faith in him. But really... Understand the richness you have in the Lord. Just meditate on that. Be thankful for that. Understand that if you have Christ, you are the richest man in town. You're the richest man in town.